Good morning. Pull out your Bibles, your phones, your iPads, whatever. Don't go to all the other apps. Get to the Bible app. Get to Ephesians chapter 2. One of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully today we'll be able to feel the weight of the first portion of the passage and then the joy of the second half of the passage. We have a whole lot of guests here on campus today, so I need to catch everybody up. Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, the really long sentence from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. One sentence in the Greek, which talked about the words in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in the beloved, over and over and over again. Our identity in Christ, and it told us who we were. We had been chosen in Him. We had been predestined. We had been loved. We had been redeemed. We had been adopted. We had been forgiven. All of these great truths, these theological truths that Paul is teaching us, and then he transitions to another really, really long sentence. So next time your English professor talks to you about your long sentences, you could just say, I'm being like Paul. And Paul in that sentence prays and says, I want you to know these things. He uses the word wisdom, knowledge, have our hearts enlightened that we may know, knowledge being the uh, repeated theme here. And what is it that he wants us to know? The point of his prayer is he wants us to know the hope that we find in Christ. He wants us to know the riches that are found in Christ. And he wants us to know the power that's found in Christ. Now you'll remember as we walk through that, he gets to that power portion and Paul, like we do when we start telling a story, he began to elaborate a little bit on the power. The immeasurable power. I can't tell you about the power enough. Remember? Thanos. You remember that, right? (laughs) I can't tell you about the power enough that makes even somebody like Thanos look really, really, really weak. The ants walking on the sidewalk. They're gone. The power of God. He reminds us. That power is the power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand, exalted him over everything. So it's the resurrection, the exaltation, and the dominion of Christ over everything in this age, every name in this age, everything in the age to come. Christ has power over everything. And it's almost like Paul took a breath and he said, okay, I need another really long sentence. So it's verses one through seven this time, and then he gets to a little bit shorter sentences. We're gonna go through verse 10. Because this passage, not only having and, pulling in all of the aspects of the power, you're going to see aspects of the resurrection, us being made alive. You're going to see the ascension with us being seated with Christ. You're going to see those concepts carried forward. But then when we get to this passage, we also see what we call an inclusio. Now, what's an inclusio? Well, it's a literary device where you put something at the beginning and something at the end, and you wrap it up with a really nice bow, and you say, here's my thought. So in our text, we start off with the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. You'll see that there in verse 2. Now, your version may not say walked. It may say lived by. If you're reading out of the NIV, it's unfortunate they didn't carry the same. It's the same Greek word. It's unfortunate they didn't carry it all the way through to verse 10 because it tells us in verse 2 to walk by it. And then in verse 10, it says that we should walk in them. So Paul's got this complete thought. Here's how you used to walk. Here's how you should walk, and inside of that's where we're going to look today. An amazing text of Scripture. We have to feel the weight of it. So we're going to look at our identity in Adam, and then we're going to look at our identity in Christ, and then we're going to look at our identity explained. And the central idea of our text for today is that the spiritually dead are made alive 
in Christ to do good works for his glory. Don't get them out of order. The spiritually dead are made alive in Christ, not by good works, but to do good works for his glory, not for our own. This is the central idea of our text in Ephesians chapter two. I wanna read verses one through three. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to feel the weight of what I hope is the way we were so that we can truly give you praise for the joy of what I hope is the way we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. We start off our first section of scripture looking at identity in Adam. When we look at our identity in Adam, I wanna give you five words. These five words all start with a D. I hope to make it memorable. I hope you find them right there in the text. But we're gonna look at the fact that we were dead, that we were drifting, that we were deceived, that we were depraved, and that we were doomed. We start with the fact we were dead. It's right there in your text. It's easy to see that one. And you were dead. What does the word dead mean? It means dead. If you're wondering what the word dead means, go to the graveyard this afternoon and talk to the dead people. If they talk back, we need to have a counseling session with you later on after that. We know what dead means. This doesn't mean that we're dead physically because we're walking around, we're laughing, we're talking. But it meant we were dead spiritually. And I hope it's a we were in the past tense. We were dead. How were we dead? We were dead because we were walking around in trespasses and sins. Trespasses. The word which means that we've stepped over the line. We've done something we should not do. We talk about these as sins of commission sometimes. These are the actions. This is crossing over a known boundary. The transgressions are the things that we know are wrong. We know we shouldn't do them and we do them anyway. You understand that. I understand that. And it's our sins. The word sins, missing the mark. We don't live up to the standard. We fall short of the standard. It can include the things we don't do, the passive actions. Sometimes we talk about these as the sins of omission. So we pray that the Lord forgives us of sins of commission, the things we do that we shouldn't do, and the sins of omission, the things that we don't do that we know we should do. And these are plural, and they're put together. So what's Paul doing? Paul is saying you're dead. 
And he's saying you're dead because you walked or you lived or you had your life centered around or controlled by or engaged in sins and trespasses. That's how we walked. Hopefully, past tense. And then after he talks about how we walked, he gives us three things. In theology classes, we would talk about this as the evil trinity. It's the world, the devil, and the flesh. The evil trinity that comes together to form this hopeless situation in which we find ourselves. We look in here and we have two textual clues with the word following. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the air, and then it moves on to talk about the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. There you see that evil trinity. Following, according to perhaps in your translations, really meaning under the control of, controlled by, So why is it that we were dead? Why is it that we are hopeless without Christ? It's because we're controlled by these evil influences. The first of these evil influences. We're dead, we're also drifting. We're drifting following the world. It's like the river, the river that is drifting downstream. You're in the river, you're playing, you're having a good time, you're in your canoe, you're fishing, you're whatever you're doing. All of a sudden you see a dead fish floating on the top of the water. The dead fish is moving. It's just drifting downstream, but it's dead. It's floating on the top. It doesn't move. Perhaps it smells. It's dead. Only a live fish can start swimming upstream, can hide in the holes. The dead fish is just adrift. Dead spiritually, we are in this world adrift. World, what does it mean? It doesn't mean the people of the world because the scripture says for God to love the world when he's talking about the people of the world. It doesn't mean the dirks or the rocks It doesn't mean that we don't like the actual ground underneath us. It means the evil systems that are put in place that fight against God. It's the course, it's the age of this world. All of these evil things we see that perhaps cause us to struggle because we are drifting, following the world. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's what this means. We don't need to be of the world, drifting along with the world. So we are dead, and we are drifting, and we are deceived. How are we deceived? We are deceived by the father of lies, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit, the ruler of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, we recognize that in this letter, later on in this letter, and you remember there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions. That's why it's so important for us to see and and tie back into the first few sentences to say this is where we are. It's also important for us to look and see where we're going. So as he talks about these words, immediately what comes to mind is Ephesians 6, 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The sons of disobedience also brings to mind Ephesians 5, 6. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That liar of old deceives us, causes us to ask questions where there should be no question. It's that sneaky serpent in the garden who's in that tantalizing tree dangling that forbidden fruit in front of Eve, saying, has God really said? And we have those same questions in our own minds. We are dead, we are drifting, we are deceived, and we are depraved. 
Depraved doesn't mean we're all equally bad. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means in our flesh, in our minds, in our will, that we are all fallen in such a way that we are affected by the fall of Adam and Eve. It's among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh and by flesh, you know, he doesn't mean the skin that's on us. He means that sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve that causes us to want to flee away from God. There is none who seeks God. No, not one. That's the flesh, our twisted desires, the desires that God gave us that may have been good desires, the desire to eat that then becomes the desire for gluttony, the desire to sleep that then becomes a desire for slothfulness, the desire for sex that then becomes a desire for lust, the desire to become intellectual people, and we should watch this one, because we really enjoy learning. But then it can become a prideful arrogance that's not helpful in the kingdom of God because we think we know more than everybody else. And we become the fool in Proverbs rather than the humble servant of God we should be. Our desires are twisted. Our actions are wrong because our appetites are wrong. And Lord willing, when we're saved, when we're changed, we starve the bad appetites, we feed the good appetites, and God changes our appetite. That's part of the sanctification process. So we are dead, we are drifting, we are deceived, we are depraved, and we are doomed. Look at what it says. We were once living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out those twisted desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. And we don't like that, do we? Wrath. I like to think of God as this loving God. I like to think of the angels as sitting up in chubby angels, fat angels with wings, right? And you know that's not biblical, but with wings, sitting up in heaven, smiling and happy. But there's the wrath of God. And if we take God and we only focus on the attributes of God that we like, his mercy, his grace, his love, and we fail to balance that with his wrath and his holiness, then what we have done is we have created a different God in our own minds so that we then have an idol that we have created that is not the revealed true God, but it is a God that we like and that we can tolerate, which really makes us God because we've created something we can stomach with our sinful, twisted appetites. And God's word says this about our condition. Our identity in Adam is that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So perhaps you're here and you think, oh, I don't have a good testimony. You know, there are those people who were drug addicts or those people who were criminals or those people who you know, killed 42 people and then they got saved and then they have this great testimony of what they were to what they became. And I say to you, read carefully the first three verses of Ephesians chapter two because you were a child of wrath and if you have been saved, it is a great testimony and a great miracle that God has taken us, me, as a child of wrath and transformed me then into a son of the king. You, if you are saved, have a remarkable testimony. Perhaps you're sitting in the room and you think, oh, I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. The Bible says, lie. You call God a liar if you say, I'm a good person. Because the Bible clearly says that you are a child of wrath. 
You are dead, you are drifting, you're deceived, you're depraved, and you are doomed. There is no hope for you apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have told somebody your testimony before and you have said, I've always been a Christian. Lie. You have not always been a Christian. You may have grown up in a home where mom and dad loved Jesus, made you go to church nine months before you were actually born, and you have been in church every Sunday six since under penalty of great punishment. That doesn't mean that you have always been a Christian because the Bible clearly tells us that you were dead spiritually, that you were drifting following the world, that you were deceived by the devil, that you were depraved in your own flesh, mind, and will, and that you are doomed as a child of wrath. Do you feel the weight? Perhaps we should put it in an illustration that we would better understand. The weight of absolute destruction ahead of us. So I thought about how could I do this? How could I get across the weight of no hope, hopelessness, drowning, going under the water, no chance for survival unless somebody comes and grabs your hand and lifts you up. So not to be frivolous, but to try to get across a, a point. I thought about a bunch of different things. I put it on Facebook and Twitter. I got a bunch of different ideas. It's like when you're playing Fortnite. <laughs> and all you have is a pickaxe. And along comes four heavily armed machine guns, shotguns, pistols. You can tell they've teamed up and they're coming after you and there's nowhere to hide. You're doomed. It's when you're playing Halo and your pistol runs out of ammo right as somebody comes around the corner with a rocket launcher. <laughs> you are doomed. It's Lord of the Rings at Helm's Deep. Just before the horses are to ride out for the last victory, before they see Gandalf on the hill coming down to ride in with the army that will save the day. It's Hacksaw Ridge with nobody to save them. It's Toy Story 3. <laughs> before the claw comes out, you know, when they're holding hands and they're looking at the fire of the incinerator and they're thinking, it's all over. Doomed. It's Meg in the river of death before Hercules dives in to save her. Yes, sir. See, guys, that's your line for tonight, all right? That's, you, saw, you heard it, all right? All right. It's Spider-Man after Thanos. That's it. Mr. Stark. I, I don't want to die. That one communicated well. I got to give somebody some brownie points for that one. All right. It's Luke Skywalker being destroyed by the emperor just before Darth Vader turns good again. No hope. It's the Titanic when all the lifeboats are gone. It's in the frigid water 
when the icicles begin to form over the eyebrows. Biblically speaking, it's Noah right before the flood with no ark. It's Moses in the river as a baby. It's the widow's son without Elijah. It's the fiery furnace with no fourth person. It's the lion's den without the mouths being closed. It's Jonah in the belly of a great fish. It's Peter sinking in the water. It's the waves crashing over the boat without Jesus to say, peace, be still. Do you feel the hopelessness? We love a good rescue story. In fact, you think about all of those movies we love for there to be an issue that seems unsolvable and right at the deepest, darkest moment, the hero rides in on the white horse or Superman comes in to save the day or Batman shows up with his utility belt. Whatever it is, you see it all throughout our stories, throughout fiction, throughout TV. We are those people. We often think of ourselves as the hero. We're the one riding in on the white horse, but we are not the white horse. We are the ones who are doomed to utter destruction until Jesus comes in, the one on the white horse, and saves the day. Do you see it? Do you feel the weight of it? I want to make sure you feel it because unless we know how much we need being saved, unless we understand how depraved we were, we can't appreciate what God has done. We don't have the proper affections for God till we understand the doomed nature of where we were. Rebels against the creator. No hope. It's over. We have rebelled against the king of the universe. And the king of the universe does what? Our identity in Adam is doom. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. And praise God that our identity in Christ is not doom. But verse four begins with those two words, but God. You know, we see in this section, four characteristics and three actions. Four characteristics, three actions. This is our identity in Christ. Let me give you the four characteristics first. God is rich in mercy, so we see mercy. It's a characteristic of God. God has great love with which he has loved us. That flows back to talking about the power which is for us in chapter one. His great love. We see his immeasurable grace. We talk about his immeasurable power. Now we see his immeasurable grace. Characteristic of God, grace. And divine kindness. He shows us this in kindness. Four characteristics of God. His mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness. What is his mercy? His mercy is that he does not give us what we deserve. His mercy is that we have disobeyed him for the 10th time and he looks at us and he says, I'm gonna grant you mercy one more time or 10 more times. The great love with which he loved us, love as an attribute of God that when applied to us results in this mercy and this grace, the immeasurable grace Grace being unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to deserve it, but God then gives us something we don't deserve. We have been disobedient all of our lives and God takes us to the ice cream shop. He takes us to Young's and he says, pick out any flavor and you can get sprinkles on top. God treats us in a way he should never treat us. And unless you understand how doomed and depraved and deceived and drifting 
and dead you were, you can't appreciate the grace, the love, the mercy, and the kindness that has been shown to you and to me. Divine kindness. The immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us. Now all of that was just a preview. But God is actually the subject. God being our subject. And there are three verbs that we see in this particular point and then the object of those. So here we have the three actions. The actions are the verbs. So God is the subject. What has God done? God has made us alive together with Christ. Identity in Christ. God has raised us up in him. Identity in Christ. God has seated us with him. Identity in Christ. Here are the three verbs and us is the object of all of those different actions. God is the subject. What has God done for us? We are the doomed rebels who have been deceived, who are disobedient, who are depraved. We have rebelled against our creator. And what does God do? God made us alive in Christ. You were dead. And that immeasurable power talked about in chapter one that raised Christ from the dead and had Christ to ascend and seated Christ at the right hand of the Father, it's that power. You can see Paul in his best preacher voice getting excited as he's writing about it. It's that great power of God that took me and took you, if you have repented and believed in him, and took us from dead, dead in the ground, in the graveyard, dead. And he said, you're gonna be alive. And God made us alive. And he didn't stop there. You know, it's, it's understandable that he would make Christ alive. Christ was a sinless one. It's unfathomable that he would make us alive, the depraved ones. And not only did he make us alive, it says he raised us up with him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, repeated for emphasis, made us alive together with Christ. And then, and then Paul's got to put this in here. How were we made alive? Oh, he'll come back to it. We'll come back to it too. But he just puts this parenthetical thought in here. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, remember that grace? And then he says he has raised us up with him. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and why did he do this? He did it so at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And there we see the in Christ Jesus, which harkens our mind back to the he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The only hope we have is being in him. It is in Christ alone, as we sang earlier, that is our only hope. It is all we have. Without Christ, we are doomed children of wrath. And he raised us up and he seated us with him. Our D groups sometimes do the book Seated with Christ, Living Freely in a Culture of Compassion, of Comparison by Heather Holloman. This book really focuses on that phrase, seated with Christ. And we get it. Introverts in the room, where are you? Okay, you two are not introverts. You don't yell out if you're an introvert. <laughs> you're off the list. Out. All right. Extroverts in the room, where are you? All right. So this is not for you guys. You want to understand this illustration. <laughs> Introverts, testify with me. When you walk into a cafeteria as the new person and you don't know anybody and you're looking for a seat, it is pure torture. 
It really is. You extroverts don't understand. But as the new kid, as a pastor's kid who's moved around to different places, that first day walking into the cafeteria to find a spot to sit down, I don't, as my son does, look around and say, look at all my new friends. <laughs> I, I look around and go, can I leave? Where do I sit? I don't, there, can I find a seat where nobody's within four seats of me on either side so perhaps I can eat, hurry up and get out of here without saying hello to anybody? All right, any, any introverts, you with me? Or am I just weird? Come on, you're with me. You understand it. And it's, it's weird because we don't have a seat. All right, here's something that may work for your extroverts. You go into a room and it's full of people who have credentials you don't have or, or who have standing that you don't have or, or who have titles that you don't have. And you walk into this room and you really look and you think to yourself, I don't belong here. And it doesn't look like there's a seat at the table for me. Perhaps that's you, even at Cedarville University, where the devil wants to tell you a lie and say to you, I don't belong here. I don't look like everybody else. I didn't come from the same background everybody else. I don't think my life is together as everybody else's Instagram life is together. I don't know that I belong here. And this text is saying to us, but God with his mercy and his grace and his love and his kindness has made us alive, has raised us up and has given us a seat in the heavenly places. You have a seat. You belong here. You have been granted a seat. We look at this and we understand that we must hold this in its proper places. Our human condition, by nature, children of wrath and divine compassion, which has allowed us to be saved. We move quickly to point number three. Identity explained, verses eight through 10. How does all this happen? Three great words of salvation here. For by grace, grace, unmerited favor, we understand this, nothing that we've done. You have been saved. Saved from what? Not just saved from hell, but saved to good works, saved from the world, the devil, and your own flesh, because now the Holy Spirit living within you allows you through the power of the word and through the following of the Holy Spirit to resist temptations. There is a way of escape, even though it may not feel like it sometimes. You've been saved from all of these things. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, now this, you must understand, does not refer back to faith. Some people want to say this refers back to faith, and it's not of your own doing, so even faith is a gift, and in some sense, faith is a gift of God that he gives to us, but this in this text does not say that faith is this. It's this in the neuter, and faith is not, and so it refers back to the entire salvation point here, because faith and grace are in the feminine, and so we take this and refer back to the entire clause, but we understand what it's saying here. It's saying it's not of your own doing. Why is that in here? There's a positive statement, then a negative statement. There's a positive statement, then a negative statement. And Paul is doing this because he knows if we can take credit for it, we will try to find a way to take credit for it. How often do we take credit for things we didn't have anything to do with? And here what he's saying is as far by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. Positive statement again. It's the gift of God, not of works. Why? So that you can't boast. So that I can't boast. 
I'm so glad I made that really great decision that caused me to be saved. I did all the work there. It was so hard. Paul says, eat some humble pie. You didn't do anything. You were saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And if it's a gift, then you didn't earn it because if you earned it, it's a reward and it's not a gift. And it doesn't say it's a reward. It says it's a gift. So it's a gift. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's also a perfect passive which means that you have been saved and will remain forever saved. You need not doubt your salvation if you have truly repented and believed and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You didn't accomplish it. You can't mess it up. You don't have that kind of power. God has saved you if you have genuinely repented and believed. You can't undo what God has done. It says here that we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see it here. Where's workmanship? What does that mean? The word there for workmanship, we get our English word poem for that word. A poem is a very difficult thing to write. How many of you have ever written poetry? It's not easy. It takes hard work. The right word, the right rhythm, the right ending, the right flow, the right connotation, the right denotation. It's incredibly difficult to write poetry. It's a work of art. It is a masterpiece. And this text says that we are created for, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work. So you're here this morning and you think, I'm really worthless that's a lie of the devil. Replace it with the truth of the gospel for you are his workmanship. You're sitting here this morning. You think, oh, I'm depressed. I'm down. I can't do this. There's nothing good that I could ever do. That's a lie of the devil. Replace it with the truth of the word of God for you are God's workmanship. I'm never going to be able to get out of school and go do what I want to do. I'm never going to be able to do anything good for God. No, that's a lie. Look at what it says. It's his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Don't miss it. Which God prepared beforehand. So that means God has given you the gifts that you steward. He's given you the passions that you have in your life. You align those passions with those gifts. You prepare well and you go do what God's already prepared for you to do. You are not worthless. You are gonna do incredibly great things for the glory of God, not for arrogant pride, but out of simple, humble service to the one who has already prepared it beforehand. That's what we're here to do. Prepare well so we get to go out and do what God has already prepared for us to do. So here's the problem. Some of us have our identity in Christ, yet we're trying to walk like we're in Adam. Dead, drifting, deceived, depraved, doomed. And you can't do that. It's miserable. And some of you may be an Adam trying to walk like you have your identity in Christ to fit in here. And that's legalism. And it's a burden you can't bear. Without the gospel, you can't do what you're supposed to do. So here's where the text comes back to it. Walk in the good works. If you are in Adam, you are walking 
in doom. Oh, but if you have repented and put your faith in Christ, then you are in Christ and you are walking. And you have a great life ahead of you. You have great gifts. Some of you are so incredibly talented. You have great passion. And I want to tell you, go do what God has created you to do. You are his masterpiece. You are his poem to the world, screaming out of his glory. And you say, I can't do that. Yeah, you will. One step at a time. And one of these days, you'll be old like me. And you'll look back and you'll go, wait a second. God already had all this stuff prepared way beforehand. All our job is, is to trust God. Because he is faithful. Don't miss the contrast. In Adam, you walk in transgressions and sin. In Christ, you walk in good works. In Adam, you're drifting with this world. In Christ, you are in the heavenly realms. In Adam, you follow the flesh or the sinful nature. In Christ, you have union with Christ. In Adam, you have wrath. In Christ, you have mercy. In Adam, you have death. In Christ, you have life. In Adam, you follow Satan. In Christ, you are seated with the king of the universe. In Adam, you have works. Do it all yourself. In Christ, you have grace. In Adam, you have you. That's it. In Christ, you have God's immeasurable power. In Adam, you have destruction. In God and in Christ, you have salvation. So we should read this passage, and we should have mixed emotions. I should have humility and despair at my condition, but for God. And then I should have appreciation, admiration. I should want to sing God's glory and praise him for the great love and mercy and kindness and grace that he has shown us when he made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. And those are my competing affections to recognize my own humility and to recognize his glory. So anytime you get prideful, arrogant, or entitled, read Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses. If you can read those three verses and walk away feeling prideful, arrogant, or entitled, you have misread the Bible. But don't stop at verse three because then you're gonna be depressed. So go on to verse four. And in verse four, you'll realize the central idea of our text. The spiritually dead are made alive in Christ to do good works for his glory. The spiritually dead are made alive in Christ to do good works for his glory. So now we go. It's God's masterpiece to walk in good works that he has already prepared for us for his glory. Dear Lord, help us to live out and realize the truths of your word. Apply them to our lives and with joy to trust you each day as we live for you. In your name we pray, amen. And you are dismissed.